0: I enjoy stand-up comedy. It's challenged, though, sometimes to find a comic who can really get me surprised enough to laugh out loud. So it was pleasing to me when I stumbled across Joe Zimmerman on a podcast one time. He was talking about self-help books and how they have titles that catch your attention so that you'll actually buy them. He himself had started to read a book entitled Happiness. And it was all about how to have happiness. It was written by a Buddhist monk. And it talked about wanting less and needing less and having less. And he said, Around chapter 4, I decided that happiness is sad. I don't want that. I want more there is a paradox in faith. The paradox is that in inviting us to let go of things, we actually have more. It baffles the mind. And it requires faith in order to enter into the paradox so that it can be revealed. In our gospel lesson today, we hear the paradox of following Jesus. Jesus, who is about love and compassion turns to those that are rallying behind him, and he says, unless you can give it all up, separate yourself from that which you hold closest. Yes, I'm talking about family, friends, and possessions. Unless you are willing to let go of all of this, you cannot be my disciple. It's a hard challenge. When we hear it to our modern Western ears, We want to dismiss this part of Jesus. He doesn't look so nice as he does in other stories. And we wonder, is he really that or He is inviting those that follow him into the paradox of faith, which is required to be his disciple. The word that we read in English as hate, and it sounds to our modern Western ears as despising and rejecting, disdain for another person. That's how we hear hate. But in the Greek, it is making the point that you must be willing to sever those ties. For you have a new identity and a new relationship, Jesus says, when you are my disciple. We've heard him talk this way before. Remember in a passage from one of the Gospels where the one of the disciples says to Jesus, your mother and sisters are out there. And he said, who are they? You all are my mother. You all are my siblings. Jesus reminds those that want to follow him that it requires a reorientation. The things that are priorities in the world are not the priorities of Christ, and we are invited to sever our ties with them. Indeed, we will have to, to be faithful disciples. You know, in the time of Jesus, he wasn't the first to speak such radical words and to be a charismatic leader that people wanted to listen to and follow. There were others, too, during this time period. Think about the fact that we as humans keep our ear to particular people, whether it be in Twitter or Instagram, or whether it be just on the news. I know there are particular people that I follow. I like to hear what they have to say, and there were people who were following Jesus. They liked to hear what he had to say. But his point to them was that this will radically change your life. And to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to let that happen. Now, it should be noted that this passage of Scripture has been used to justify horrible things in the world as well. A misunderstanding of the gospel is the kind of thing that's led to people drinking the tainted Kool-Aid or the horribleness in Waco. It's what justifies this kind of charismatic fervor is what people have returned to when they wanted to justify suicide bombings. Again, I call us to enter into the paradox and to realize that we are not called to violence and hatred, but instead to reorient ourselves to Christ, following him in all things, which is going to mean we got to let go of the ways and the priorities of the world. Fortunately for us as Episcopalians, we have some guiding principles in that regard. Think of our baptismal covenant that we'll say in just a little bit. It talks about continuing in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, it talks about persevering in resisting evil and whenever you sin, to repent and return to the Lord. It invites us to seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbor as ourself. It employs us, engages us to fight for justice and respect the dignity of every human being. With the guidance of the covenant, we learn how to reorient ourselves in the way that Christ is asking us to. We know that when we persevere against evil, sometimes that means we have to sever particular ties. It takes effort. That's why the verb perseveres in there. We know that when we seek justice for all people and respect the dignity of all people, it's going to take some reorientation. It's going to be hard. Jesus wants those that follow him to be made aware of this. Our baptismal covenant can also remind us of how it is that we can achieve this it's with God's help for as we embark on the keeping that covenant we realize this is impossible when we sit down to count the costs, we realize we don't have enough it is with God's help that the gap is closed when we reflect on our own limits when we measure our skills and abilities and we see that they fall short That is the invitation to prayer, to turn to Christ and say, I don't have enough. How will your grace complete this picture? How can I allow your grace to be present in me so that you can do the redeeming work necessary to bring us to that conclusion? When we become aware of our own inadequacies, our own shortcomings, that is the invitation to prayer That's the invitation to prayer, rather than to say, you know what, I just can't do it. It's impossible. I'm just a little old me. Instead, we are invited in counting the cost to notice that we can't complete the picture, but only through God's grace can it be complete. I find that people do a lot of measuring for themselves before they embark on many things. Maybe they look at their time or their money and they say, you know what, I can't do that now. As I engage with thoughtful and considerate people, you among them, this is a repeated theme. I'm mindful, though, there's one area shared by almost every person where we don't count the cost, and that's in having children. I read somewhere or heard somewhere, I don't even know when, or from where, but because it's been a while, of what it costs to raise a person from the beginning of life until they're finished with college, 22 or so. It's somewhere around a million dollars. When you add up the meals and the clothing and the lessons and the education and the haircuts and the gas, all of that, it comes to somewhere around a million dollars. I, for one, can tell you that if I'd known that was the figure, and if I had to be able to show that I would have that much to complete the picture, we wouldn't have four kids. Which of us, in embarking on having children, really looks at what it will cost us? If we did, we wouldn't have gotten started. But you know what we know in having children, whether biologically or through adoption, what we know? is that it's even worth more than a million dollars. It's worth the cost, whatever it is. And we say to the person, if we have a partner with which we're raising children, we say, we'll figure it out. Somehow, this is going to work. Jesus invites us to let our faith be like that. To turn to God and say, you know what? I know with you, we'll figure it out. I'm on your team. I want to follow you. I want to let your grace transform my life in such a way that the impossible will become possible. And I'm ready to lay down whatever is required of me in order for your grace to make complete the picture, in order to be taken into a new reality. I can't do it by myself, Jesus. I can't follow you from my own strength but I trust you. It is hard to trust God with life. I think if we can confess that and admit that to ourselves, we're already further down the road than we are if we don't. I find that we are given an opportunity weekly to trust God with our lives. And it is in the spiritual practice of keeping Sabbath. Yes, that one of ten commandments that was given oh so long ago and that we have inherited as Christians keeping Sabbath. It is countercultural, this idea of giving God a day. Out there, nobody understands it. Why would you? What's the point? And look at all the important stuff that needs to be done. There's some reason in that thinking. And we can be tempted to align ourselves with those, allowing them to be temptations for ourselves that, yes, I do need to keep producing and to keep working in order for everything important to be done. But God has good news for us, that we're not in charge of it all. And he invites us in one day to remember that, to give God one day, Now, because society has changed so significantly over the last 50-plus years, we aren't supported in some of those practices in our culture. So it's up to us to adopt practices that remind us that this is all God's, and that God's got it, and that we are following God for the teachings of Jesus. Personally, on my Sabbath day, the primary thing I do is I don't check email. Does that make your heart race a little bit? Do you kind of catch your breath? Maybe your palms get a little sweaty at the idea? 24 hours? What if? Such a practice for me reminds me that God's got this. I say, yeah, what if? I think, what's really important that I'll need to know? And so I tell people, you call me. If somebody goes in the hospital, call me. If someone gets a diagnosis, they should call me, but I'm not checking email. I invite you to adopt one thing on this, on a Sunday, I think you'll be best at practicing it, one thing that reminds you that God's got this. Maybe it is not checking email. Maybe it is not going on the internet all day, not even to watch that cat video Not even to hear your favorite podcast. Seriously, one day. Maybe it's to do no shopping, which includes not even getting gas. Or a quick jog to the store for milk. I have found that in keeping Sabbath, it reorients my whole week. When I remember that I'm not checking email on Friday, I think, Oh, I need to get in touch with so-and-so so they can get back to me on Thursday. Because I'm not checking email on Friday. It also helps me claim who I am as a Christian person. I tell people, I don't do email on Friday. I just let God run my life for 24 hours. I say, you know, I let God run the church without me for 24 hours. That's my language. And, um, you know, because God did it a long time ago before I ever came on the scene. And uh, God does a really good job, all by God's self, on 24 hours. Um, So what is your language? Like any temptation, you have to let people know that you are in the practice of resisting it so they can help you. People who have dealt with all kinds of addictions know that this is key, that you communicate to those around you so that they can support you. I invite you to adopt one practice of letting go of something significant on the Sabbath so that you are prepared to let go of other significant things should God invite you to do so. It does take practice. The idea of giving up our whole family and our possessions is like being asked to run a marathon when the most training we've had is to get to our car in the rain. It seems impossible. So it's important that we take up some practices that help us build some muscle in orienting our life toward God. You know, you might wonder, why do we do this? If it's going to be hard, why am I signing up? If following Jesus is going, to, is going to invite me into a paradox and I have to rely on my faith to live in it, why should I do that anyway? Life is complicated enough. I think that it's worth considering because of the faithful that give witness to what orienting your life to God does the joy, the peace, the freedom that is found in following Jesus. We have living witnesses of this. We have ancient witnesses of this. I want to close with a piece of scripture, a story from the book of Acts, that highlights this very fact, that in following Jesus, there is new life, new life, and that's why we go through all the challenges of it. To bring to your awareness the setting of this piece of scripture, Peter and the apostles have just uh, spoken to the council, the leaders, in the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem. This is their spot. Peter and the apostles, this is their faith community. And they've just finished speaking to the council. Those that are in charge of carrying on the faith and of educating people in the practices of of the Jewish faith. Now, Peter is bringing it to their attention that Jesus is somebody more than what they expected. And you can well imagine that this causes unrest in those that are committed to orthodoxy and holding the faith together. So, here's where the story picks up. When the council heard what Peter and the apostles said, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to the council, Fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, but he was killed and all who followed him were disappeared. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow it. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. The council was convinced by him, and when they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Then they ordered the apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. As the apostles left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. May we be encouraged by their faith. Amen.